Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done um, over 520 or 30 of them by now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. Obviously, today I'm not on Skype with somebody. I'm interviewing Julie Brown Yao in person. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Um, and we're out here in California for the Science and Non-Duality Conference. And this is the first of a number of recordings that I'll be doing out here and releasing over the next couple of months. Julie has a 30-year background in psychological, somatic, and spiritual traditions, providing her with a unique depth of knowledge and direct experience. Julie's unified approach for addressing developmental and complex trauma includes the latest neuroscientific and psychosomatic findings, depth psychology, and Eastern wisdom. Julie is an author, speaker, and has a private practice in Laguna Beach, California. She works on Skype worldwide, as do I. Um, Julie supports those on a spiritual path to embody realizations and assists those going through spiritual emergence. Emergence and emergency, I would imagine. Sometimes those words are interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. She's also the Director of Education and Program Development at Compassionate Care, ALS, helping families and individuals through trauma and the dying process. Julie's latest book, The Body Awareness Workbook for Trauma, Release Trauma from Your Body, Find Emotional Balance, and Connect Your Inner Wisdom. And her website is juliebrownyao.com. So, welcome, Julie. Thank you. It's good to be here, right? Yeah, and it's nice to be able to do this in person yeah, rather is. than over Skype. If I could, I'd do them all in person. Yeah, that's But lovely. there'd be a lot of travel involved in that. <laughs> so, but it's fun coming to Sand once a year and um, you know, interviewing a bunch of people in person and mm-hmm. meeting people in person that I had interviewed over Skype. So I really enjoy it. There's some kind of a energy or chemistry or something that happens when you can do it in person as yeah. opposed to over Skype. Yeah, it's a little different. So as I began thinking about this interview... And, you know, looking through your book, um, the question occurred to me, I wonder if, you know, Julie is so interested in trauma because she herself experienced a lot of trauma at a younger age. And maybe that is true and you can talk about that. But I also overheard you in the car last night talking about how you seem to have the capacity to tune in to the collective consciousness when a major traumatic event happens in the world, such as 9-11 or the tsunami in Indonesia or maybe some of these shootings, I don't know. But it really seems like this is your dharma. You're wired to have an attunement to the collective consciousness that most people don't consciously have. Mm -hmm. And probably that's how you got into this whole field. What do you think? I think you're probably correct. Um, And it probably began from a meditation practice that began when I was about 15. Mm -hmm. So I began an Aikido practice with my father. My father was an uh, Aikido master, fifth dan. You know, he lived and breathed and ate his practice. And I would go to the dojo with him. And before we would practice, we'd do a very short meditation. And in our tradition, we'd connect to the earth below, connect to the heavens above. And these energies would meet right in the physical body. And then we would practice. And I just was able to feel these subtle energies that we were working with. And it was very natural because my father was teaching. So I never questioned it or thought it wasn't a normal thing to be able to feel. So very short meditation, but I really remembered that 
When I was 18, I was in a difficult period in my life. I'd left England at 17 after high school. I'd come to California for a year, and I went back to England. My parents had left the country. My family home was gone. I really had no idea what I wanted to do with life, so it was a bit of a struggle. What got me through that struggle was remembering the meditation practice that my father had taught me. So I sat down and you know, felt my body connected to the subtle energies. And an extraordinary uh, phenomena began to occur from that. So first of all, this energy came up from my core and it seemed to open up the top of my head and that was the cosmos. Mm. And I had no context. I was the cosmos? Is that what you just said? No, I wasn't. It was a different, I could see the cosmos. So at that point, I didn't know we were the cosmos. Uh (laughs) There was just this extraordinary expanse that seemed to be alive and vibrant. Mm. It looked like space. And it was out of the crown of my head, and I was fascinated. So every day I would sit down and I would explore by connecting with my body. I could feel these energies moving within me, and all kinds of phenomena would unfold from that. So I feel, because I was meditating from a young age, maybe I was just wiring my system naturally for these phenomena to begin to occur. And it seemed like you had a proclivity for that kind of yeah. experience, because not all people do. Right. I mean, right. I know my sister started meditating when she was 13 or 14, and she still practices it, you know, 50-something years later. But she often laments that, oh, I don't I have all these profound experiences, like all these people you interview. Right. And I always sort of play that down with her. I say, you know, flashy experiences are not necessarily the acid test of anything. No, that's um, true. You know, we, we know people who've had all kinds of flashy experiences and then go off the deep end in some way or another. Exactly, yeah. And we'll probably get into why that could be. Right. Um, so one thing I often encourage her and others is not to belittle yourself or, or compare yourself with others Absolutely, who yeah. are having, you know, profound experiences because mm-hmm. ultimately they're not, um, you know, a clear indicator of your level of consciousness or necessarily of anything else. I mean, no. maybe somebody sees auras, fine, but doesn't mean that they're necessarily more evolved spiritually than somebody who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. And as I was going through all of these phenomena, I really wasn't, I mean, they were fascinating mm-hmm. and it really built up an intense sense of curiosity about what was going on, but there was no grasping onto them. There was no, oh my gosh, you know, this psychic phenomena and that psychic. Yeah. You know, it was fascinating. What it gave to me, I believe, was the dismantling of belief systems, Mm. of fear and separation and, and, um, you know, unhealthy, or not unhealthy, but maybe um, it it allowed me to go into this field of trauma in a way that allowed me to hold a space in a different way. Mm. Because ultimately opened me up to this profound sense of interconnectedness and compassion that we all are, and that, you know, that pointed the way, I believe, to trauma. I never thought I would be a trauma therapist or a psychologist. Yeah. It was by exploring the body that got me really interested in emotions and then got me really interested in the mind. Mm-hmm. And then this sense of suffering that we all carry in in our, in our beings that led me into trauma. So one thing led to the next. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And initially, as you just said, it wasn't trauma. It was more like you're having these profound experiences and this is interesting. And, yeah. And, but it just yeah. sort of... But, and I remember, think, I, these aren't the words that I was thinking, but I have the, the words now. I was more interested in the ground of which everything was mm-hmm. happening in. So when I was seeing and experiencing all of this phenomena, what is this spaciousness? And maybe this came from this, you know, experience of the cosmos. 
um, what is this space that everything is experiencing? Yeah. So why I had that thought or that longing or that that's what I was interested mm-hmm. in as, a part, as opposed to all of the phenomena, I don't know. I think that's a good orientation because one can get caught up in zingy experiences, yeah. you know, and get all enamored of them and sort of lose the forest for the trees. <laughs> it can be fun. It can be exciting. Yeah. It's, you know, there's lots of paths you can follow. I wasn't really that interested in doing that. Well, I wasn't interested in doing that. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, some people belittle experiences like that. They say, oh, it's just illusion. It's just Maya. You shouldn't pay it any, any attention. You know, just focus on the ground. And I have more of a both-and kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. Not that you need to pursue those kinds of experiences, mm-hmm. but if they occur, they're natural, and they probably are occurring for a good reason. Mm-hmm. And all the saints and sages throughout history have reported having all kinds of interesting experiences, mm-hmm. in addition to being well-established in the ground. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I think it gives us a lot of information and knowledge mm-hmm. and allows us to hold the mystery of being and the mystery of, you know, the whole cosmos. Yeah, and some sages have actually advocated, you know, culturing certain experiences as long as the ground, as you put it, is your first priority or is the foundation of it. For instance, Patanjali devotes a whole chapter of the Yoga Sutras to developing certain cities or mm-hmm. certain, you know, so-called supernormal or uh, unusual <laughs> yeah. experiences or abilities. Mm-hmm. I think mean, it's amazing the potential of the human mind. Yeah. When you go through something like a kundalini experience, I think that's partly what was happening to, you know, my own body, which I didn't know at the time because I knew nothing about that. Mm-hmm. You know, something would happen and I would go try and research, what on earth is this, you yeah. know? Um, so in retrospect, I knew I was going, th- I know I was going through a kundalini experience for about 15 years and it's very slow and very beautiful progression. So it wasn't like I hear a lot of people in a spiritual emergency where these, you know, deep, Volatile energies are coming up and they feel it's a kundalini and uh, have traumatic experiences with it or it brings their trauma up. For me, it was this very gentle sort of these doors opening wider and wider and wider into the, the mystery and the potential of our human brain. So that I thought was fascinating. Some people say, such as Joan Shivarpita Harrigan, who runs the Kundalini Care Institute in Tennessee or used mm-hmm. to, that, well, she says a lot of things, but one is that if kundalini experience is traumatic, it can very often be because there are blocks and obstructions and perhaps we could say buried traumas. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of stirring things up in there. But mm-hmm. if, if it's smooth for a person, then very likely they, they don't have too much residual trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so therefore it can take an easier course and it doesn't have so many roadblocks to plow through. Do you agree with that or...? It seems to be the way, you know, if I look back at my early life, I don't think I had, you know, so much trauma. Mm -hmm. When I was 20 and I looked back, I wouldn't have said I had any trauma. Mm -hmm. But now understanding what developmental trauma is, which we can talk about later, Mm -hmm. um, there was, of course, trauma. But when this energy moved, I believe it was moving in a very gentle way. I mean, it it was big energy. But it wasn't traumatic, and for whatever reason, maybe I had that pr- prolificity, as you said. I didn't say that. Word. Thank you very much. <laughs> Trip over my tongue all Prolificity. the time. Prolificity. <laughs> that would be talking a lot or something, or being of a fecundity. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I just was able to hold that energy for uh-huh. whatever reason. And, and I would see flashes and images of all things, all kinds of things moving through me that mm. seemed to be from my own life, other lives, who knows, the collective. Yeah. And I could just sit with this energy moving through me and all of these visions. And so this is fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that was happening. 
um, did you feel like you were serving as a kind of a filter or a washing machine to, you know, the, the, these things weren't moving through you just sort of arbitrarily, but it, it was actually a process wherein you were um, neutralizing or resolving uh, back, back, Yeah, back then I didn't think that at all. I had no idea why this was going on. Yeah. It wasn't something I was seeking. It was all spontaneous, mm-hmm. other than the fact that I was meditating, but I had no idea that meditation could possibly possibly lead to these you know, phenomena or these right. openings or this, you know, expansive awareness and consciousness. Later on, it changed because mm-hmm. I change and through many years of dedicated practice, I think we, we can shift to where then I became aware of the energies that were and do move through me are somehow cleansing or transformative outside of my own individual being. And that, that becomes very clear sometimes. And again, it's not something I've talked much to, talked much about, um, be, because I haven't really found any value in talking about it. Mm-hmm. But as I'm talking more to an audience about my work and trauma and spirituality, people really want to know who's talking to them, and you know where sometimes I may get my information. Is this something you read in a book? No, this is something that I experience directly, and if I can experience it, we all can. Mm-hmm. And so it shows the potential of us all to be able to heal, heal ourselves and heal, you know, part of the collective if that's what we choose to do or choose to do us. Yeah. One thing I hear a lot from people is that they feel that their process often involves initially a stage of self-healing. And when that has completed itself to a sufficient degree, then they naturally begin to serve as an um, instrument for more of the collective healing. Mm-hmm. It's like they begin to sort of not take on, but process or dissolve stress or trauma in the collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. I hear that from people and I yeah. see that. But I think the, the opposite, another way can happen is when we have a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. When we're younger, our boundaries are ruptured. And we, so we have more access maybe to the collective consciousness. So I work mm-hmm. with a lot of people who are trying to work on their own trauma and they can't separate it out from the collective. Oh. And, and they have a profound sense of pain because they feel as if they're feeling everybody's pain. And it's just simply too much. And in some way that interferes with their own healing. Oh. So in that case, we try and work with boundaries and grounding and coming back to the body and being able to work with just, you know, what is mine as opposed to the too muchness of the collective trauma or pain that might be coming. Yeah, that's interesting. Obviously, this is one more example of there being no pat formula that applies no. to everybody. Yeah. No, this is true of so. everything. Yeah. But what you're saying is that the, the boundaries do get ruptured through traumatic situations in many cases. Yeah. And so sometimes reinforcing or rebuilding those boundaries might be the first step, you know, whereas for somebody else, they might have reached a stage at which dismantling the boundaries or allowing the boundaries to to relax and dissolve Mm -hmm. might be appropriate. Mm -hmm. I think it's always important to have our own energetic boundaries, so so not wanting to dismantle Uh or collapse that. I think that's important. But yeah, very early trauma disrupts our, ruptures our boundaries, and I think that is really important to begin to to heal, you know, and strengthen. Yeah. In the beginning of trauma, but I would say in the very beginning of healing trauma, what is most important is a sense of safety. Mm. So creating a sense of safety in our environment where we are working to heal, but also some kind of sense of safety in our body 
because trauma lives in our body. It, it doesn't feel safe. It's trauma. It's frightening. So how can we begin to cultivate some kind of a sense of safety within that allows us not to go diving into the awful experiences when we're healing, but to allow some more pleasant experiences to feel that first. And that's giving our body the environment of feeling safe, feeling okay, which allows our body to move on its natural path of its own wisdom and healing and also gives us some ground in our own body to feel okay and allows a sense of organization in our body systems to come about because trauma is so disorganizing. So rather than just diving into disorganization, we want to cultivate some kind of organization, some kind of ground or pleasantness in our body first. So I want to get into elaborating and embellishing the things we've just been saying. And I have a lot of questions about trauma. And later on, we have a small audience here. And towards the end of this interview, we'll see if anybody in the audience would like to ask some questions. Mm -hmm. But before we get into all that, I want to just pick up on what I alluded to in the introduction, which which was that you seem to, at some point along the line, have developed this capacity to quite spontaneously, not looking for it, tune in to traumas in collective consciousness. Last night in the car, I was reminded of that line from Star Wars where the Death Star blew up the planet Alderaan, I think it was, and Obi-Wan Kenobi all of a sudden said, I just felt a great shock in the force as if a million voices were crying out in alarm. Yeah. And you've had experiences when, you know, 9-11 and tsunami and perhaps some other things you can tell us about where you just like, oh, what was that? So talk about that a little bit. The first large collective experience that I went through, I was in Virginia on a meditation retreat. And in the middle of the night, I woke up because I was freezing cold. And it was in Virginia and there didn't seem to be any reason to be so cold and the room was very, very dark. And I just sat there, you know, curious, what is this coldness? And then my vision opened up. Oh, no, first of all, I could hear voices and I could hear, help me, help me, help me, mm. you know, which was quite alarming. And I could hear like the depth of the alarm or the concern or the pain in the voices that I could hear. And then my vision opened up and I could see hundreds of men walking through the room in front of me, Mm. Um, very transparent, but I could see the clothes that they were wearing and their dark hair very clearly. And I really had no idea what was happening or what this was. And I remember just thinking, you know, what do I do do here? What what is this? And it's kind of cliche, but I heard this voice say, tell him to go to the light. Mm. And then here was on my right side, this extraordinary uh, bright light, this extraordinary What was so extraordinary about it was I could feel it, Uh, this incredible sense of love, like beyond anything I'd ever known at that point in my life. And so I knew I could communicate with whoever these beings were who were moving in front of me when I thought, go to the light, because there's some kind of telepathic, you know, uh, information being passed between us. And I saw them move then towards the light. Um, It was outside, you know, our ordinary time space. It was, yeah. So off they went, and then the room got warm again, and I sat, and it was a really, really profound experience. And I had this deep longing inside myself to also want to move towards that light. Just the feeling of it was so was so profound. So I sat for a little while in the darkness, and I went back to sleep, and I woke up in the morning. It was actually before I woke up, I had this dream of this beautiful being standing over me with these blue ocean eyes and just looking at me and like as if he was stroking my forehead and just pouring compassion into me as if knowing when I woke up, I'd be feeling something 
deep inside my heart from what I'd just witnessed. And sure enough, I woke up and I was very teary. And I went for a walk outside just to contemplate what had happened. And a lady who was running the retreat was coming back from town. And she gave me a newspaper and she said, oh, there was a, a huge earthquake in Turkey last night, you know, and thousands of people died. And I had no doubt that that's what I was experiencing. Yeah. And again, it was fascinating and it dissolved some belief systems, but I wasn't, I didn't really tell many people. I told, you know, my partner and a couple of friends. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem to be some spectacular thing. Somehow it just seemed to be the ordinary for me, sort of the extraordinary and ordinary. Oh, that was fascinating. How, how beautiful to see and how beautiful to participate in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I let it go. But after that, that began to happen very, very often. Right. And then after a few Tell years... Tell us one or two more, if you would. Um, well, there was a couple of tsunamis where I could... Then I would actually see what was happening. I could hear some really harrowing and upsetting sounds. What happened in one of the tsunamis, then I'm surrounded by what I call a light being who just feels like pure compassion. So, you know, I, I am her and I'm me and ordinary me is sort of out of the way a little bit. And these beings or the energy of these beings who just died seem to move through the heart center. Because, of course, when heart center opens, it's the vastness of space. There's, there's a cosmos. So there's some kind of clearing or channel of moving of energy through the heart center that we all have the capacity to do um, that is in service in some way. No, I don't know exactly what happens, how to articulate it. I experience it. It's beautiful. I don't doubt it in any way. Yeah. And then it's over and I let it go. Yeah, I was going to say something similar, which is I don't know exactly what's happening with this, but it's fascinating to contemplate. And there, it sort of gives you, a, if, if you didn't have it already, I'm sure you do, but it, it enhances your respect for the, the sort of divine orchestration of life, mm-hmm. you know, and how there are, dimensions of things going on that we don't ordinarily perceive or know about but that are very much involved in our lives and our welfare Mm -hmm. and and so on and that and that sometimes people can be used as instruments or aids in helping to affect a certain influence you know yeah 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 possibly one of the elements that i believe is that human emotion needs to be processed through the human body or through the human heart or heart mind. So oftentimes emotion is too much for people to bear and here's the trauma side of it and they're unable to process that emotion. And so people may, you know, live the whole life and not have been able to process the traumatic energy or emotions from their lives. And here we can touch into intergenerational trauma. We know that trauma then can be passed on to the children and then the children's children and so forth. But it doesn't necessarily have to go through a path of an actual family, right? We're all a human family. So we can possibly or certainly be able to process a whole field of energy through our own heart mind because this isn't an individual space. This is the cosmic space. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which we can then process a field of emotion and that gets healed and liberated and so you know somebody else doesn't then maybe have to do that yeah i was involved in the tm movement for many years and um, 
one of the things that Margie emphasized was that trauma or stress, as he sometimes called it, collects in the collective consciousness, much like mm -hmm. static electricity collects yeah. in a cloud, you know. And eventually when the static electricity gets strong enough uh, or the polarity is strong enough between, you know, the cloud and the ground or two clouds, you have lightning because mm. the static electricity can only get so out of balance mm -hmm. before it has to neutralize. And so his explanation of war, for instance, uh, and perhaps some of these other kinds of cataclysms that take place in the world, was that it's a sort of a release of an excess of, of um, trauma or stress in collective yeah. consciousness. Yeah. So at one point we had this project where we um, went in large groups to the most troubled areas of the world as close as we could get to them. I spent mm -hmm. three months in Iran yeah. just before the Shah left. I remember vividly standing on the roof of my hotel watching all the banks and the movie theaters go up in flames because <laughs> oh things yeah. were getting out of hand and they were trying yeah. to eliminate Western influences. But in any case, a lot of research was done as we were doing these projects, and there did seem to be an indication that the larger the group and uh, in, in one of these areas, the, the, the more there was a correlated reduction in undesirable social and economic factors, mm -hmm. and, you know, war deaths and crimes and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So I just say that to illustrate the point that you're making, which is that either an individual or even better yet, larger groups of individuals can have a neutralizing effect on collective trauma mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if they're doing something which can have that effect. Did you so, feel in that experience that that emotion itself was being liberated or just dissolving in some way? I'm not sure, but one thing I did notice is that when there was some kind of incoherence in our group, then incoherence would spring up more in society, okay, the society yeah. around us. For instance, at one point, there was a bunch of disagreement among some members of the group, and we also had to split up and, and stay into separate hotels, and it, was, it disrupted the, the groove that we mm -hmm. had been in, the nice routine. And as soon as that happened, um, you know, the, things got wilder in, in the, the areas around mm -hmm. us in Tehran. And that's a very unscientific observation, you know, <laughs> but it was my, it just seemed that it worked that way. Yeah, yeah. And it did also often feel like a battle. Like we're in the midst of this very chaotic place hmm. and we're just doing deep meditation um, in, in the hopes of neutralizing a lot of that chaos. But it wasn't like meditating in the Himalayas or something. Right. <laughs> a little different, yeah, yeah. up in rarefied air. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's interesting. So the, the point where the reason I went into all that and the reason you just said, and we we're discussing the idea that there is trauma not only in individual nervous systems or psych psyches, but in the collective yeah. nervous system or the collective psyche. Yeah, absolutely. Collective consciousness. Yeah, and we can touch into our own and we can touch into the collective and, and heal both. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would assume that maybe we can get into defining trauma a little bit more precisely, but I would assume that however we define it, um, everybody, all eight billion of us, are traumatized to some degree. Absolutely. I, sometimes just a little tiny bit, sometimes huge. Yeah. And there's a spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, trauma is part of the human condition. Yeah, I mean, getting born. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really traumatic. Not a picnic. And we are wired to be able to heal that trauma. Uh -huh. But sometimes the events are just so much that we aren't able to. So just because something like a traumatic birth happens 
doesn't mean we're going to be traumatized. It depends on the environment that holds us through this. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to a lady this morning about my daughter's birth. So she almost died in childbirth. Um, and fortunately, I had a beautiful deep bond with her through pregnancy. So on the evening before her birth, I, was, I knew she was going to be born the next day. I hadn't had a contraction, and I was sitting meditating, and I heard her, and she said, I'm dying. Right? And I was like, wow. So I didn't doubt it for a moment. I got my family and we rushed to the hospital. And I think the nurse thought, you know, crazy first time mom and rolled her eyes. Yeah. And, and I said, no, no, you, you really, how many contractions have you had? None. And so they put the heart monitor on me. And sure enough, her heart what beat wasn't there. And then it hit a little bit. So wow. straight away into the emergency room and an emergency C section. And the whole time I just stayed really connected with her. Um, and just calmed my own system because I knew, and I was so grateful that I knew about trauma mm-hmm. in this instant, in, in so many incidences, so I could stay as calm as I possibly could and let go of any idea of a, a natural drug-free birth. Yeah. You know, and as they were trying to pull her out, you know, they were saying, we can't get her, and she's dark blue. And I just, just staying with her and conscious. just letting go. I was conscious, yeah. yeah. Um, they gave me an epidural so right. you can't feel below your waist. And then eventually they pulled her out and they suctioned her mouth so she took a breath straight away so she knew she was okay. And then I said in in the deepest mother bear voice, which I couldn't even say now, it has to be in that moment, I said, put my baby on me. Uh And they did. Uh They put her right on me and then she went to my breast. Uh And I felt that was what really helped prevent that entanglement with death as Mm -hmm. she came into life from her being traumatized. So I was able to hold her and nurse her. And just, I held her in that hospital for three days. And the nurse would come in and say, you know, we'll take her to the room now in the evening. And, and I laughed. Yeah, <laughs> no way. No, you're not taking her anyway. You know, you wow. don't need to. So she stayed with me. And I was very aware that, you know, her body could have been a very terrifying place to be in because she may have almost died, yeah. you know, in my womb. And so I needed to nurture and hold and love and coo and yeah, yeah, just to, to give that love and that safety and use my own nervous system mm-hmm. as a, a place of safety and calmness. So the first year postpartum, so we're getting into developmental trauma now, the first year postpartum of a baby's life, they don't have a capacity to self-soothe. So when we're born, we can't calm ourselves. So this is why if you put a a screaming baby in a room of screaming babies, all the babies are screaming. Nobody can calm themselves. There's nobody there to act as that system to teach the baby how to to calm itself. Mm -hmm. So I was that for my daughter. And, you know, we had a beautiful, I guess, 13 years now. But those initial three or four years, I was very aware of just the presence and the calm states and the love that she would need to feel very safe in her body and very safe in the world. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's an amazing story. As you were telling it, I was reminded of some things I heard you say on some recordings I was listening to about how in years past, decades past, there were certain psychologists that advocated this letting babies cry and you're going to spoil their personalities if you coddle them when they're upset. Right, yeah, and, yeah, and, John uh, Watson. And so they would like, you know, Parents would like cower in the doorway mm-hmm. while their baby screamed itself yeah, for yeah. hours and yeah. f- afraid to touch the baby for fear they'd, you know, ruin its personality or something. Right. Completely the opposite of what they should be doing. Yeah. And I also heard you mention foundling homes because a lot of babies yeah. were abandoned, especially when there was such a stigma against unmarried 
um, pregnancy. That's right, yeah. And so babies would get left someplace and be found and put in family homes. And they were sort of like in isolation, each baby. They put them in isolation because yeah. there was a lot of germs being passed back and forth. And mm-hmm. they, you know, it was around the time of germ theory. And they thought, well, if we separate the babies from one another and other people, they won't die, they won't get germs. Right. So, of course, they isolated the babies and the death rate went up higher huh. because of the isolation that the child didn't survive. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily the germs that were killing them then. It was then uh, isolation. We, we come into the world so dependent on other people, right? We need mm-hmm. other beings to help us learn how to soothe ourselves. So if something horrible happens in the environment or in our own body, we learn that it's okay because love then comes back to us and that's how we build resilience. So people will say, you know, babies, children, they're so resilient, they'll be fine. Mm. No, resilient is nurtured and cultivated and built within us by the love and the holding and the safety of the environment. So when something awful happens, something nice happens and we say, okay, you know, I can get through this. Just because something bad happens doesn't mean I can't stay connected to my body or the world. I can actually feel better, right? That builds resilience and allows us later on in life, maybe when more troubling events or challenges come, we can stay with them and are less likely to be traumatized by it because we've built that resilience. Yeah. But if that doesn't get built in childhood, we're more likely to get traumatized in adulthood hmm. in, a, in a frightening event. That would make sense. So, you know, obviously the baby has the proper kind of upbringing with the proper kind of touch and, and closeness and affection yeah. and everything else. It builds a, a much more invincible personality. Yeah, in uh, a way, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you're damaged from the outset, then you're going to be susceptible to new damage later on. Yeah, or more if we are disconnected from our body because the body becomes a really frightening place to live. Yeah. Right? If, the, if, our, if our body is traumatized... It doesn't feel good, right? We, we contract in the face of trauma. So being really deeply in this contracted, restricted body doesn't feel good, mm-hmm. you know? So we disconnect from the body or completely dissociate. Yeah. So it's, it's not necessarily, I don't like to use the word damaged. Mm-hmm. It's more, it just doesn't feel good. It feels so painful. Mm-hmm. But when we begin to address that pain and that contraction and allow ourselves to open and soften, and there's many ways to do that, then we naturally will reconnect to the body yeah. and then and, and come home. I'm reminded of, you know, indigenous cultures, Native Americans and so on, where the mother will basically wear the child. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and one of those, what, I forget what they called them. Um, I can't but, remember either. Yeah. You know, on, on, either on the back or on the front, the, basically the kid is part of the mother's body. Yeah, I yeah. really believe we should wear our children. Yeah. And that's just your <laughs> They're out in the fields or pick the yeah. corn or whatever, baby's right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it must have had a one... I guess modern mothers are hip to that idea more and more. You, you see that thing. We, we do see it, and I think that's wonderful. Yeah. What we also see, though, is a mother holding a baby, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. but looking on the phone. Yeah. Right? The, the experience of the infant in yeah. the mother's arms is lovely. Right? Yeah. But if a mother isn't looking, right, you, you look, you look away, you look, you look away. You know? But if you're just continually on your phone, mm. the baby has this sense of being... Potatoes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the baby knows that. It's yeah. tuned to the, to the mother. It knows it's been ignored and mm-hmm. it doesn't know why. And the experience of an infant of a child mm. and the environment not being pleasant and helping them is it's their fault. Yeah. So the baby isn't thinking, oh, God, mom's on her phone again. For goodness sake, mm. look at me. No, the baby's like, there's something wrong with me. This is really frightening. I yeah. need to disconnect. If, if it's, you know, severe 
enough. I mean, just an occasional look at your phone for a few minutes is good, but that continual repetition of not really paying attention and attuning, you know, and having eye contact with that infant and then child is really detrimental to the well-being of the infant and child to, to know themselves yeah. as love. Is it generally understood and accepted these days that babies are as conscious and as cognitive as you are saying they are? I mean, in our case, we don't have kids. We have a couple of dogs. And we have to talk in code language about taking the dogs for a walk because, uh, and actually not even put out any kind of a feeling or a vibe that we might be doing that because the dogs pick up on it right away. That's so intuitive. I mean, even like going, in, going out for a shopping trip or something and not wanting the dogs to come, we have to be so nonchalant because one dog in particular is like uncanny. He knows when we're going shopping. Mm-hmm. He, he'll go outside and stand in the garage and not come back in because he knows you're going someplace. I know it. And I'm going to get in that car. <laughs> you know? right. yeah. So, I mean, if a dog can do that, um, it seems like yeah. babies must be. Yeah. I mean, where this, where this relationship is built, right, when a baby goes in distress, distress, you know, crying, uh-huh. the, there's something in the mother that feels distressed to bring the baby and child back together. And oftentimes that distress is is ignored. Mm. And then the baby goes into a high state of arousal. If that keeps going, There's then they might... circle. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're designed to be with our children. Mm. It's just society and culture and so forth right now often doesn't allow for that. So it's not that a, a mother or a father or parent doesn't want to be with the the child. They have to work. It's, they have to work right. or they're really busy. And so then that's and what we have daycare centers these. probably don't provide the kind of one-on-one that they the child needs. Yeah. They don't, you know. And then depending what the birth was like, what the time in the utero was like, you know, is going to give something or not give something to the child who's then in daycare and how safe that feels to be away mm-hmm. from the parent. So there's so many considerations to look at, but there's just not that much time for parents to be able to do that. So I felt incredibly fortunate that I could do that with my daughter, that I could, you know, I didn't have to work right away. And then when I did work, I was doing some retreats and people mm. would come and I'd say, this is part of life. My daughter's nursing. She's going to be in the room with this. This is just the way that it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Some of the more, I would say, intelligent cult countries in, in, in the world actually have very good policies about, um, people being able to spend time with their kids after they have, have a baby. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, yeah. It's important because that's, that's the ground, right, of the human being yeah. to be able to grow up in a, in a way where they feel connected. So if we disconnect from ourselves as a child, it's going to be really hard to really connect with other people when we grow up. Mm. I assume that um, trauma has both a sort of a neurophysiological component and more of a... Um, subtle or you could even say astral or, you know, kind of something in the cloud kind of component, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I bet you if it were thoroughly understood, and I'm sure it is understood to a certain extent, there could be identified various chemical or structural abnormalities. I assume that trauma has both a neurophysiological component and a subtler one, just as we have sort of a mind and then maybe a, a physical instrument w- which enables the mind to function. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, you know, scientists could look into the, the biochemistry of trauma and how impressions are left in the nervous system. And um, I think in Sanskrit they call them samskaras, mm-hmm. they're these deep impressions. But I think even the, the, the Vedic tradition, which would use that word, understands that they're not 
exclusively physical. There's also some scars that are somehow deeper in whatever the subtle body is. Mm-hmm. And, and it, we actually carry those from lifetime to lifetime, they mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can be born with a whole packet of traumas that you incurred in previous lives. Yeah. In fact, there are contemporary stories of kids who you know, wake up screaming because their, their, their jet fighter has, is going down in flames. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, so what do you have to say about that? It's a great possibility. I know I read some of Ian Stevenson's yeah. work, who did University a tremendous, yeah, a tremendous amount of research on that. So mm-hmm. it's a great possibility. Yeah. Right? Um, the work that I do myself, people come in and often will share some information of what they feel is a past life. It's not necessarily my job to believe that or not believe that. Mm-hmm. It's really just to hold the space of what it is they want to explore. Mm-hmm. But certainly, we have imprints in our psyche that we could carry from lifetime to lifetime. And it seems that that's what shows up sometimes. And maybe that's why I had this, what's that P word? Proclivity? Yeah, for meditation. (laughs) Maybe that was an imprint that came in with me. Mm. Maybe that's why some of us are more prone to be able to sit and open up in that way. Some people mathematics, some music, things like that. I definitely get the sense with a lot of people I interview and when I hear some of the experiences they had as children that, they did a lot of spiritual practice in past lives. To me, that whole past lives thing is not a big mystery or a problem. It just seems logical. I don't know if there's so much wisdom in, in dwelling on it. Yeah. I, I, we're here now. Let's be in this sure. life. But if there's imprints that come up in this life and the here right now, then we work with them. Yeah. But even now. the knowledge that our life consists of much more than the span of a single lifetime mm-hmm. um, can, I, th- I think, relieve great fear and trauma because if you think that this is all you are and when this body dies that's the end of you Mm -hmm. then as that time approaches i would think unless you really want to check out and not exist in any way shape or form anymore uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in which case i'm sorry you had such a rough life Mm -hmm. um, i would think that you would um, find comfort in the notion that there's an ongoing process of evolution and i've just you know just like education i've gone through fifth grade, now I'll get a chance to go through sixth grade, you know. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah for some people it may bring comfort. For other people it might evoke a little bit more fear. Where will I go next? You know, right. a lot of people don't like the unknown anyway, so an unknown, another life. Yeah, yeah. A, friend, a friend of mine who's sitting here was saying how he was raised in a Catholic family and his earliest trauma was um, being told that he was going to do- go to hell for all eternity if he thought a bad thought or did a wrong thing or mm-hmm. <laughs> something mm-hmm. like that. You know, imagine drumming that into kids' mm-hmm. heads. And then there's another perspective of what, you know, there's an individual consciousness that goes from lifetime to lifetime. Mm-hmm. And then there's a larger consciousness that is all of that. Yeah. So we could experience ourselves in a, what seems like a past life, right, in this construct of time as all of the beings that are experiencing that. And I say that, I was speaking at breakfast this morning with, with some of the people here about exploring my own intergenerational trauma, I was looking at sort of the masculine side of my family mm-hmm. and looking at my own life and how that shows up in, in the world around me. And I sat down just to contemplate that in a meditation. And what showed up, um, kind of a vision, it was more than a vision because it was as if I was in that vision, was World War I. Mm. And I was, I was really taken aback in this huge scene that consciousness was in, but it wasn't 
as if I was remembering a past life and I was one person. I was all of those beings in that scenario, which was absolutely horrifying to see these young men do, you know, 18, 19 and 20 with these guns and the batons in the end. Yeah. And they just, you know, tears and screaming of horror at what they were doing yeah. and checking out and then being in the, um, in the trenches and just what that possibly could have done to that masculine or male side of my lineages mm-hmm. over the generations. So we have past lives, future lives and so forth, or is it all one body experiencing all of it and we just tap into an individual consciousness? Again, it's a mystery. Do we know for sure? These are you know, amazing things sometimes to explore. Well, you know, I mean, as many people say, it seems that the deeper you go, the more universal it gets, right. you know? And so we're the ocean analogy, we're a bunch of waves here, on the, and yet yeah. deep down, we're, it's all just oh, it's one all ocean. Yeah. unified ocean. And, yeah. you know, whatsoever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Yeah, yeah. Huh. But one of the beautiful aspects of that experience that I had, right, it's just an experience, it came and it went, but I was feeling the pain of or what I felt was I was feeling the pain of these young men, right? And I could feel it go through me. So from my knowledge, some of that pain was being released from that intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. from the, the male lineage of, of both my maternal and paternal sides. Mm. And there was a subtle sense of then freedom with my own self as I'd acknowledged that pain right, and felt that pain and seen that pain and maybe some dissolution of it. One thing that, remember earlier I was talking about the, the idea that perhaps stress accumulates or trauma accumulates in collective consciousness and when it reaches a breaking point, we have a war or something. Mm-hmm. One thing I never understood about that, and I think I asked Marishi about this one time, but I forget what he said, uh, is that it seems like if the war is the expression of the release of the accumulated tension or stress... It seems like wars generally create more than they release. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, they, they would exacerbate the stress in collective consciousness, it, w- it would seem. Maybe not. A lot of times there is a sort of a beautiful reconciliation after a war. I mean, look at how Germany has evolved uh, since World War II compared to what it was like beforehand. Mm-hmm. So perhaps despite all the trauma it incurred, and the bombing of Dresden and everything else that happened, uh, there was some purging of something in collect- the collective consciousness of Germany, and now it's a much brighter place than it used to be. Possibly, yeah. And yeah. then we see in the work of intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. individuals still processing, processing some of their emotion you know, from their ancestors as it travels down intergenerationally. Yeah. So maybe that's you know, part of that cleansing or part of that healing is and even after the war and the generations after continue to do that healing. Yeah, Thomas Hubel works on that a bit. You yeah. know, Thomas, he yeah. speaks at the Sand Conference and he's been on BatCap, but uh, he he's specifically works on the collective trauma between Israel and Germany mm. and does things to try to help reconcile it and neutralize yeah. it. Beautiful. I often, though, you know, think about when I see the news and what's happening in Syria, for instance, and the, the children being the victims of chemical warfare and bombings and everything else, I think, oh, what is happening to these kids? I mean, compared to any trauma I may have ever experienced, (laughs) you know, there's a whole country full of children who are experiencing something so horrific and we're kind of breeding a whole country, at least, uh, of severely traumatized people. 
Um, and I'm not sure if there's any conclusion to the, the thought I'm expressing here, but it's just like I, I lament you know, what's the, happening to those kids. Yeah, the likelihood of them growing up as healthy, loving, connected beings. Yeah. Imagine isn't the amount very of repair high. work that would have to take place. Right, right. Speaking of that, you sometimes see stories of people who were severely traumatized. They were sold into sex trafficking or seriously abused by their parents or something. I mean, I've interviewed a woman, Shelley Ray, I believe her name was, who was sexually abused by her father at a young age. And, um, but then they somehow, despite the horrific nature of their experience, blossom into these amazing people. In some cases, people even say things like, I'm grateful for everything that happened in my life, despite mm-hmm. how bad it was, because <laughs> look, how I'm, look how I've kind of turned out. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it was actually conducive to the spiritual awakening that, yeah. that ended up resulting. To maybe becoming who they are now, right? We could call that post-traumatic growth. You find yourself becoming more than who you were prior to yeah. the trauma taking place in some ways. It, it builds resilience. It creates greater connection. And I think that feeling of that, you know, hidden gift in trauma comes later on once trauma is beginning to heal or mm-hmm. healed. It's very difficult to, to feel that or to know that in the midst of the pain of trauma. But I see that all the time, you know, people who've gone through just such horrendous trauma as children, just horrendous. And yet there they are in my office or in a group. And they're just these beautiful, loving beings who are doing this courageous work to heal. Mm. Typically what I find is there was someone, even for a moment, that looked at them with love, Mm. that resonated within them at some level, that they know who they were, right? They knew who they were. One of the things that I talk about is as children, we really need to be seen, we really need to be heard, and we really need that beautiful eye gaze. Of course, there's possibilities that somebody is blind, and, and, but there's, there's other senses, touch, sure. sound, smell. But that gaze will pull love, right? The delight of the parent seeing the child or the caregiver seeing the child just pours that love into the child. And that resonates with who they are. Yeah, this is who I am. I am love. Hmm. When we don't get enough of that, you know, then we forget we are love. And we separate from that or we block the heart from the pain of the loss of that. So these people, individuals and groups who've had just such horrible, horrible trauma, um, somehow either have had that experience of somebody looking at them with love or caring about them or seeing them at a level that touched them, or there's imprints that we were talking about earlier in their own psyche that allows them to, to grow up is what we would think of as, as good, loving human beings. Yeah. One thing I, one of my bedrock beliefs or assumptions or mm-hmm. understandings or whatever it is, is that if you zoom out to the big enough picture, mm-hmm. then the universe is a benign place. It's very, it's, it's a big evolution machine mm-hmm. in which ultimately the welfare of all beings is the, uh, is the concern or mm-hmm. is the prior is the, agenda. Mm-hmm. And that if you don't zoom up far enough, it's very hard to come to terms with things like Auschwitz and other things we've been talking about. But if you could zoom up far enough, take a God's eye view, so to speak, then you would actually be able to see that everything that happens, however atrocious, is in the big picture in the interest of the ultimate enlightenment of all beings concerned, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. beings involved. Mm-hmm. And do you sometimes think of it that way, or is that a little bit too 
philosophical for you. No, no, I, I don't think it's philosophical. I've experienced something similar where I can be sitting with an individual doing some trauma work and then all I all that is seen is that um, I'll use the word God right now, right? All I can see is that expression of that that's what that individual is. So is the air, so is the carpet, so is the wall, so is this. Mm. Right? There's an individual here looking, but there's a recognition of everything as spirit itself. Mm. And it's a then there's no agenda to heal or to fix or anything for this individual. There's just this pure expression of light and, and love, I would say, just expressing itself in this sort of luminous glow. Can you give us some case studies, so to speak, okay. of different people you've interacted with or you know, helped or dealt with? And uh, some of the things they've gone through, well, however you want to tell it, mm-hmm. but um, some examples of the means through which trauma is discovered, mm-hmm. healed, mm-hmm. and the outcome of that healing. All right, all right. Let me see what comes. I always want to honor people that I honor, speak honor about. confidentiality, of course. No, 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 of course. But a number of people will say to me, you can share my story. Yeah. Because it gives meaning to them. That it gives hope to others. That gives hope to others. Right. But it Which also, yeah, it also gives them something because their pain is being heard. I'm actually showing a few pieces of art on Saturday at the Tzan conference mm-hmm. from a lady, you know, and she paints after our sessions. And I asked her, I said, would it be possible to show one of your pieces of art? And she said, oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And she said, it's really meaningful for me that people witness my pain. So in the same thing as sometimes people say, it's important that my pain has been witnessed, maybe even more than just by you, but by a larger audience. So I just, I wasn't prepared to, I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to see what comes up. But I always like to say, I'm just not going to talk about anybody's story. It's always one where I have that permission because I think it's, it's important. So I work with a number of people who are born in a war zone, or a revolution, um, or an uprising. Mm. And that seems to create horrendous amount of trauma because, first of all, they're born into a collective experience of fear. And, of course, their caregivers or parents are going to be in some kind of fear because there's a war or a revolution or an uprising happening around them. And, you know, then the whole environment is disturbed. And so... A number of people that I've worked on from that kind of background have disconnected from their bodies. I'm just going to sort of group it into a few people. Mm-hmm. Disconnected from their bodies so severely because there was just nothing safe here. The parents weren't a safe container to help themselves soothe because their bodies were feeling disruption, you know, with the fear itself. And so they've either gone into their mind and their intellect and become incredibly brilliant intellectual beings and and a number of them very highly successful in what they do because this has just become such a focus. Others have gone into uh, deep uh, spiritual practices. Okay, so now it's coming to me, two people that I'll, I'll speak to directly. So one individual who 
uh, became very bright, incredibly successful man. Everybody would look at him and, you know, say, what an amazing life, you know, all of the riches you could imagine and so forth. And uh, everything that, you know, in some places in our society places success and, you know, so good looks and money and all of the bells and whistles. But inside is such profound suffering. He's an individual, again, who grew up in a, um, in a revolution. And he said his teacher, one of his teachers, when he left his home country and came to America, would look at him with such love that he remembered that resonating within him. But it didn't shift the trajectory of his life until later on. He decided he knew what he wanted to do, and he knew he was going to get there, which was meaning getting, you know, in this huge corporate job and then owning a huge, you know, corporation. And he said, it didn't matter what I did or what I did to anybody to get there because I couldn't feel it. Uh He said, in retrospect, he said, I, I couldn't feel it. So even though I had those thoughts and those drives, I didn't have the empathy or compassion that he cultivated through healing his trauma that he, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he, he thought that having that great success would bring him happiness. And, of course, it brought him moments of happiness and luxury and this and that. But inside, he said, I'm just tortured. And nobody knows I'm tortured inside. And so, we, you know, we begin this trauma work. And it's a really a courageous path to, to face um, the horrific things that happen inside ourselves because I think we spend a lifetime avoiding feeling that. So being dis- so disconnected from the body is to avoid the pain that's living there and the disconnected emotions that go with that trauma. And of course, the fragmented or split off parts of our consciousness that are frozen in time or outside of time as we grow. So it's like going back and touching into those places. What kind of symptoms was he experiencing that um, motivated him to come in for therapy? That, you Misery. Know, that clued him up. Oh, Misery. Yeah. So he was fortunately physically that he didn't have any physical symptoms and he was only in his mid-40s. So he gained a tremendous amount of success relatively young. So in his mid-40s, he just recognized, I'm absolutely miserable. There's nothing else that I could get externally that could make me happy because I have everything I could possibly want. Perhaps it wasn't until he was where he had hoped to get Mm -hmm. that he realized that he was miserable because, okay, I've gotten all this and Mm -hmm. I'm still not happy. So, ooh, there must be something. So he wrote his life and became that success with a sense, a false sense of pride mm-hmm. or traumatic pride. So he was better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, he looked down on everybody else. He deserved more than everybody else. And he said, that was my drive. And I kind of believed it. Yeah. Even though there was a tiny part of me that didn't. He was a stable genius. Yeah, he got there. So <laughs> through our work, then he had to face usually what's under that type of pride mm-hmm. is profound level of shame that a lot of people yeah. just won't even go there. So I admire this person so much because he turned around and he would experience that shame and the neglect that he went through and the horror that he went through of feeling so bad inside of himself because yeah. he didn't know it was his environment that was failing him, you know, with the war and his parents and the de- neglect and the lack of love. He just thought there was something wrong with him. It's like that gets embedded into our system. But before you go on to somebody else, mm-hmm. so how did you work with this guy and what kind of healing did he undergo and how did his life change afterwards? So his life is, I'll 
sort of went backwards that his life is changing yeah. to where, where he was very isolated mm-hmm. before. Now he's very connected with other people. Mm-hmm. He feels a sense of joy inside. He's enjoying the fruits of his hard work in a way that he never had before. And then he's connecting with different types of people. Mm. Like, you know, he was very limited in who he wanted to associate with because it had to fit with this particular view of himself. And now he's open to all kinds of people. And did he undergo that shift in orientation just through talking to you or did you have him do something, some kind of particular practice? Or The way that I work is always organic. Mm-hmm. So we see what shows up in the moment. So as he's expanding his awareness by bringing awareness to what's going on in both to his body and what's going on inside of him. At first, he had no connection to his body. So his body wasn't really in the picture other than I don't feel anything. So the first thing was cultivating some kind of sense of feeling something, you know, and you say, you know, what do you notice in your body? You know, it was like a little bit disturbing because there was nothing there. So we learn what do you notice in your experience and it becomes less disturbing. Every time you say that, I'm reminded of a line from Good Morning Vietnam where Robin Williams is going to the radio station for the first time and he has to get up really early and he's walking down the hallway and says, I'm not even in my body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, who would be right there? I mean, it's horrifying. Yeah. So it's not the, there's not a one, two, three step, you know, that we could write down, do this, this, this. It's mm-hmm. all, you know, it's, I find it is like this weaving in and out from different places, you know, touching on sadness, touching on grief, touching on longing, touching on rage, touching on annihilation, touching on all of these aspects of our being and gathering them and weaving them back into us until we begin to feel a greater sense of of wholeness. So sometimes it's as if I can do a deep dive with somebody into what feels like the underworld. One lady would talk about it as the underworld. It's like you come down into the underworld with me, you know, and she meets all of these dark forces within herself and then we come back up, you know. Some people say, I go down there on my own and you throw me the rope. You know, there's different metaphors and analogies of how people experience the work. There must be a good reason why a lot of stuff does stay hidden from us. Yeah. Must, it must, there must be a, either protective or just a, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be nature's way of how we're wired that we're not necessarily aware of all this buried trauma. But obviously, I don't know what metaphor to use, but it's, it's sort of like we can never rest easy as, as long as that stuff is, is down there. It's kind of like trying to push a beach ball under the water and it's always trying to pop up and you yeah. have to keep pushing to keep it down there. But obviously, don't want to mix my metaphors, but obviously at a certain point when you realize it's there and you need to release it, there must be a way of artfully releasing it. And there could perhaps be ways of too abruptly or prematurely or something. Oh, absolutely. And also uh, what comes to mind is psychedelics and ayahuasca and all that. What if somebody has all kinds of buried trauma and they do that stuff and it's too much too soon as a result? You know? yeah. yeah, I've worked with people in that scenario yeah. or who've done like some deep, profound breath work and things have come up yeah. or gone to a meditation retreat for 10 days, uh-huh. right? And as they gently soften and relax, up comes from, fluid. you know, the beneath <laughs> conscious awareness, all of, all of this yeah. traumatic memories or feelings or emotion. So there is, a, I believe, in working in a gentle way, you know, mm-hmm. creating safety, creating connection, boundaries, in, in allowing... Pacing it. Pacing it. Yeah. So every little piece of work that we do is done, uh-huh. right? It's integrated, it's finished, and we let that settle. And then, yeah. and then the next piece, and I allow the wisdom of the individual in their psyche to show what, what comes next. Mm-hmm. 
But we have this mechanism within us that we can split off, right? So we don't have to feel what's too much to bear. It's nature's gift, if you will, because sometimes these horrifying experiences that we can have as a human being, to have to feel all of it. Would, yeah, would, it's better know, to check out. Yeah, so we, we, can, we can disconnect from the body. We can disconnect from the emotions. The problem with that is the emotions don't go away. They're still affecting us, the below our conscious awareness, right. but we're still being deeply affected by them. So maybe we're going to stay isolated because we're, you know, we're too afraid to connect with other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of ways it can show up. Um, and so we want to gently explore and hopefully explore before too many symptoms begin mm. to come up because at some point symptoms will show up. And it's not always obvious that it's trauma or developmental trauma because people don't understand the subtleties or the nuances of early trauma. They think it's just, you know, there's no just about it. They think, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, the death of a parent, a surgery, some big event, you know, that's obviously traumatic. But oftentimes it's not enough nurturance, holding love, comfort connection subtle stuff subtle stuff that feels that's really essential right as a human being to have it feels too much for the infinite child in their body because it elicits a sense of threat right there's a threat and a, a, an infant child we can only experience so much threat in our body it almost feels like death is approaching we've got no way to escape other than to leave our body there was a Frank Putnam, who was a psychiatrist, said it is the, es- the escape when there's no other escape. Right? We disconnect from our body and we split off the emotions. Um, so we really want to gently collect those and bring those back. I've heard that people with multiple personality disorder are usually traumatized. And that it's almost like it's not even enough to have one personality disassociated from the body. It's like they've got maybe half a dozen of them or something. Yeah, yeah, huh. yeah. It's an extraordinary phenomenon to to witness that. Yeah. yeah. With regard to spirituality, I mean, the main theme of this show is spirituality, and most of the people who are listening um, are interested in awakening, and they read Ramana Maharshi, and they're on the kind yeah. of the seeker's path. Let's talk a while about how all this relates to spirituality and what its significance is for the spiritual aspirant? Mm-hmm. Well, I see healing trauma as a spiritual path. I, I don't separate them. I just don't maybe always speak that way because that's not always uh-huh. the audience. Or perhaps as an important or even essential component yeah. of a spiritual path that might have other components. Okay. Yeah. So we are connecting back to ourself. In trauma, often that self is hidden away, and we are living from a a sense of self that's inauthentic because our expression as children, again, I think so much trauma goes back to our childhood. So that's why I really always, you know, lead my conversations back to developmental trauma. So our our authentic expression of who we are gets squashed. Maybe our core or essential self gets hidden away somewhere. And so we have to develop strategies and patterns to live in a world that are really not really who we are. You know, we're attending to other people's needs rather than our own. And it's, it's a subtle and sometimes not so subtle way of suffering. And sometimes we go into a spiritual path of seeking to, to find something. We're seeking something. We're searching for something. But if, if, we haven't, if we're seeking without our core essential self or nature or being connected to that, and we're not being authentic in our expression of 
connecting, then maybe there's a little something missing. Or if not missing, let me see if another way of putting it. I work with a tremendous amount of people who have profound realizations and spiritual openings. And then something comes up, some kind of pain or memory or emotion bursts through into their awareness. And it's as if that realization becomes obscured. Mm. Maybe this faster awareness or expanse that they were living with all of a sudden is gone. Mm. And then shame comes up, right? And then depression and I'm not good enough. And, oh, and my teacher's going to shout at me and all of this, right? And it's, it's awful and it's real. What I find that is, is the unresolved early trauma finding its way through. Yeah, perhaps as a result of the spiritual awakening that took place, that becomes sort of a solvent which enables the um, embedded trauma to loosen up. Yeah, so it's beautiful in one way. It's very valid. Of course, the experiences are very valid, Mm -hmm. but when they seemingly go away, and of course nothing goes away, um, when it's obscured, it's, it's giving rise or it gives rise, that expanse gives rise to the unresolved trauma, right? So up it comes, but there's, because it's in the body and maybe the person hasn't been so connected to the body, um, it feels really frightening, you know? And, and they get overwhelmed maybe by the shame or the disappointment or the sadness or the grief and, or the loss. Yeah. And so a lot of those individuals will come in to me and work with that. And so we'll work with, with whatever's present. And then, of course awareness of the expanse opens up again and but there's a different sense of it the experience if they've been disconnected in their body in this spiritual opening or realization when it's grounded in the body the experience of it is different and it tends to be less transient because it's grounded in this vibrancy right the body becomes this uh, vibrant expanse of feeling of being home there's a syndrome that a lot of people go through of, I got it, I lost it, I got it, I lost it. I yeah. And it, sometimes that can go on for years. And But I think that there's a development taking place sometimes with that cycle where, mm-hmm. you know, when there's some dawning of clarity and, and expansiveness, it enables another batch of embedded trauma to loosen up and be worked out. Yeah. And yeah. then when that one's pretty much processed, boom, the expansion again. Mm-hmm. And then that allows a deeper level. To, yeah. But eventually that cycle seems to play itself out and people get into more of an abiding state, and uh, it, which doesn't get disrupted by. Yeah, yeah which is beautiful. Yeah. It's the recognition if something emerges that feels difficult. Ah, let's let's resolve this. Let's see what this is, as opposed to being overwhelmed by it and hiding away and feeling shame or pretending it's not happening. Mm-hmm. You know, which I which I see a little bit because then yeah. there's some spiritual pride comes in, and we have to pretend and not be authentic. You know, so it's it's really finding that balance of being able to recognize and work with whatever comes up in our experiences here to be met mm. with a certain amount of, of presence or because trauma is relational, it really helps to work with another person, whether it's a therapist or a friend or somebody who can witness what's happening for you to help it resolve itself or the fear dismantle, whatever yeah. it might be. This afternoon, you and I and about 20 other people are going to be in a meeting about, that was, that's being hosted by the Association for Spiritual Integrity, basically a discussion among a bunch of teachers about the spiritual community and, and you know, how there have been so many examples of spiritual teachers behaving badly mm-hmm. <laughs> and causing all kinds of new trauma in their students and uh, all sorts of disruption and, and so on. 
And yet many of these spiritual teachers have a reputation for being in some highly evolved state and apparently not not in the I got it, I lost it phase, and yet still really off kilter in terms of their behavior. I don't know how broadly we're defining the word trauma. Can a person be relatively free of the um, residual effects of trauma and yet still be seriously undeveloped in some aspect of their personality? Or do you think that if one were trauma-free, then correspondingly all facets of the personality would be nicely developed? So is there an assumption then that a spiritual teacher is trauma-free? Is there? Yeah, and, I don't and think so. would be <laughs> trauma-free if anyone ever gets to that exactly. point. Exactly. I think we're all a work. Right? One of my teachers said <laughs> we're all a work in progress. Right, I'll say that. I see this in, in different ways with different people that I've witnessed a lot of teachers in the spiritual traditions and the trauma and psychological traditions as presenting a particular image of themselves. And mm. that becomes very destructive and there's so much projected onto a teacher, yeah. so much projected. And, you know, everybody's human. And there's this point where I see that certain teachers stop doing their own work, mm. right? So they're no longer a work in progress. They begin to believe the, the vision that some of their more starry-eyed students have of them. Exactly. <laughs> and if that underlying trauma that they may not know is there begins mm. to come out, if it's there, mm. this is the bursts of anger whipping out, yeah. right? Or this is the condemnation that they do, or this is the sexual behavior, whatever it is that is really disturbing in breaking that trust and that confidentiality mm. of the students. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. The other story that I was going to tell you when you asked about oh, right. um, another right, person. Was person who went, she, she went to India to, uh, to work in a, an ashram. So mm-hmm. she went on a spiritual route to avoid the pain of her past. And fortunately, she didn't get so involved in this ashram to where she gave everything up to the guru. And that guru right now in this last year or so, all kinds of uh, horrific stories are coming out about him. Mm-hmm. What he had all of these cities that you were talking about earlier, so these powers, he, he was exuding some energy that people would feel and then they would feel that within themselves and have bliss. But he was clearly manipulating people's minds mm. to take their money, to take their possessions, to bow down, take their bodies, to, <laughs> to bow down yeah. to him. And in my discussion and work with a number of people who've had similar scenarios, it's not always as big as an ashram and so forth, but gurus and teachers, is they have, some of them, have an ability to attune cognitively or cognitive empaths to tune in to this underlying early trauma, again, taking it back to trauma and spirituality. Maybe not on purpose, but maybe, or who knows, and becoming the parent, becoming the loving mother, becoming the loving father, becoming everything that that child didn't have or couldn't receive as a child. Now somehow this guru or this teacher Mm. is giving them that in a very clever, sometimes sublime way. Mm -hmm. And um, and then becomes very painful because it's not resolving something, it's repeating. So I would say everybody in that scenario who I've worked with, who's worked with a teacher who's had some mishap in that relationship or the sangha or the community is working on resolving. It's it's a repetition in some way of their early trauma. Mm -hmm. And the teacher, the guru, mentor, 
becomes the person becomes the parent or becomes the person that's going to help this person resolve if they're able to see it that way. But I, it's, there's a problem out there, clearly. Yeah. And it's not limited to gurus. I mean, politicians can of course. You know, play yeah. those mind tricks. It, yeah, it, hap- it happens everywhere. But yeah. right, trauma and spirituality is that conversation and, and it's, I see that yeah. a lot. Yeah, one thing that I, I think that will have to happen if this tendency for these guru-disciple ashram-type train wrecks to, mm-hmm. is going to end is that it's going to have to be a, a, a kind of a greater upsurge of self-confidence among the, the students and among the sort of greater collective mentality of spiritual aspirants and mm-hmm. seekers. Because there's this tendency for people to think, it's kind of alluding to what you just said, to think, well, this guy seems so flashy and I am just a schmuck. And, you know, he's doing these weird things, but who am I to judge? You know, I mean, he's supposed right, to be enlightened, yeah. so maybe that is okay if you're enlightened. But that's, uh, and, that's what's and, we're projecting this, all of this Yeah, you're projecting and you're them. doubting your, your own common yeah. sense. Yeah. You know, so if people could just get a little bit more confident and if there could be a, a greater collective appreciation of what is and is not appropriate, such as has happened in the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. you know, people are no, no longer putting up with this kind of crap, mm-hmm. then I think that would do, go a great way to, you know, clean up the the, the, the weekly scandal um, announcements. That... Yeah, I know. <laughs> but if we look inside, is what, is what is it within us that thinks this person is so fantastic and we're not? I mean, it's that lack of self-worth or self-esteem. They can, I can't, or only this person can give it to me. Yeah. Like, my life, I would say, you know, I, there's certain teachings that I loved. I love the teachings, not the teacher, you know. So, mm. so receive teachings, but look inside. What are you projecting onto that human being who's a teacher even. Yeah. You know, I, I really feel that within ourselves we can find that. Of course, with the assistance and helps of others, teachers come and go, but to give everything and your whole being and your possessions to somebody, of course, that's an extreme uh, experience, but people not do totally, that. Not very uncommon either. But we have it inside and... I feel when we heal those traumas, right, those subtle nuances of trauma that actually don't feel so subtle, mm-hmm. where we have unresolved anger that can turn in against us, which gives us self-criticism, self-loathing, self-hatred, then we're more likely to search out the goodness and the brilliance and the radiance that we have in ourselves and another. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's a bit of a catch-22 because a lot of times people seek out a teacher or mm-hmm. because they have those traumas. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like, okay, I'm going to fix my traumas, then I'll be able to find a good teacher. It's like, I'm well, broken, you know, save me. Yeah, well, that's why I, I, you know, I, I don't particularly love going out in public and talking and talking about my experiences and this and that. The reason I do it, I think it's important for us to understand more about trauma and developmental trauma, how it distorts our sense of self and who we are Mm -hmm. and how we see the world and how we see others. So just this awareness of how trauma can affect us um, in any path in life and just being aware and taking a peek and let's see, you know, what is the dialogue that goes on in my mind about my own being? How am I with other people? You know, am I always trying to please everybody, you know, or am I actually confident and upright and secure in my own being that I can receive a teaching without worrying that the teacher might not like me or I'm not doing it good enough or I'm not doing it well enough or I might get kicked out or she's not going to like me. All of those 
are aspects of that lack of our own self-esteem and worth that can come from not having that nurtured in childhood, which is a form of earlier developmental trauma. So rather than seeking out somebody to save us, because we really don't need saved, we can resolve the pain that's within ourselves and find our own way to our own way um, of, of confidence and uprightedness and this strong sense of agency and self. And I say self and love aren't separate. So it's not now I have self-love rather than self-hatred. It's no, we are love. You know, there's not this self-existing entity running around. We are love. And when we know that as a direct experience, we're much more likely to see that love in the world around us mm. and to be less affected by those who may not experience that within themselves and are being mean or critical or awful, you know, and we, we don't want to enable that, but we're not going to buy into it so much. Yeah. Right? All right. Any questions from the peanut gallery? I think the questions okay. might stimulate it. Okay. Hello. I'm Bonnie Collins from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I'm really uh, very privileged to be here today and to have met Rick Archer and Julie Brown and everyone else in the room. Um, I feel very privileged and um, I'm very heartened and touched by the story that Julie told of her daughter and how um, she pulled the daughter. She asked that the daughter be put on her chest when when her daughter was born and um, I'm just really so touched by that. And I feel, and I actually know, I guess I should say, of someone who is caught in a paradigm of that, that the buried trauma, and who believes that we are born either blessed or cursed, as in Deuteronomy in the Bible. So it goes way back deep into that. And it's almost to the point of it's a cult and they aren't really open and willing to discuss it with a therapist right now. They with, feel they're cursed? They feel they're, they were born into a cursed family. So they're not open to any change. But I, knowing them, feel I want to save them. Although, as you were discussing that, you can't really save someone else. So do you need to let them fall on their own? Or can you send them subtle energies? Because you were talking about the subtle energy bodies. And I read somewhere that the past can be healed. But one must be willing to do it, do the work, and their own right. And I don't know how that plays. I don't know how that works. It brings back this spiritual, what you were talking about, both you and Rick were talking about, about the guru-disciple relationship. And that the teacher of a, say, a cult in a cult can lead the, quote, disciple. And I think they've pulled this person downward and downward and downward. So this person you were talking about was in a cult? Is probably or now, is now a cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And communication is sort of limited, but it's on and off. And, and I feel like I want to do something. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Maybe they don't know the exact circumstances. It's hard to speak directly Mm -hmm. to it, of course. I mean, we can always offer some thoughts or our feelings 
to individuals, you know, is our thoughts and feelings. I don't know if it's our job to save people in that sense. Your question about subtle energies and in the traditions that I've worked in or studied in or uh, practice in, work and talk about subtle energies and how that can help heal. But the piece about that is to always ask permission. So if we are in touch with those subtle energies and can you know, use those for healing or feel they can be used for healing, like prayer and so forth, to maybe put with it, if this is you know, accepted, if this is okay at some level, some, some form of practice. So we're not putting our ideas and our beliefs and our life experience on somebody else because we really don't know if somebody comes in and chooses something as an experience or if this is their karma or if this is you know, what they, they need or don't need. We, we really don't know. So I, I always try and stay away from the saving somebody or having an agenda to do anything for somebody. I'll always, if, you know, in my work, it's if somebody comes and asks and wants to explore something, we'll do that. Does that answer that enough for you? Very much so. Thank yeah. you, Julie. Julie, thank you very much and your insights on all the different things that you've been talking about. My question is simple. I've always had a sort of default contraction sort of in the back of the neck, say the brainstem area, a little bit in in the front. And it's almost like if I was going to define it, it would be like what you get if you have, say, stage fright or impotence or insomnia or golfer's yips. There's just (laughs) this, this sort of little contraction. What if I don't, you know, what if I hit it the wrong way and then I will hit it the wrong way? And so it's sort of like a default kind of thing. There's always some, maybe you could say a 2 to 5% flight or fight mechanism. Mm-hmm. And if isolated with body awareness, which I understand, you know, I can feel it. It doesn't overshadow me or anything, but it's always, it's, it's like a huge wasted energy mm-hmm. because something is going on that, um, it's like as though there's a blind spot or something. Just this one thing I've never been able to figure out. And sometimes I feel as though, like, say I'm a, I'm a balloon and I want to be free. We all want to be free and then just float up into where I could be. And maybe there were 50 ropes holding me down. And it's just this one rope left. I've, got the, I've done this, I've done that. But there's this one thing. And whether it's one rope or 50, you know, you still can't float in the, the sky. So what did with your understanding of trauma and body awareness, if you had any comment or any insight or suggestion on that? Well, if we were in session together, uh-huh. I'd be so excited to explore everything that you've just said because <laughs> it could go so many ways with your uh-huh. languaging. Um, you know, this floating up for freedom, is that leaving the body freedom, mm-hmm. you know? Or are you going up with your body into an expanse? I mean, we, we're not our bodies, we're more than our bodies, but we're here to be, you know, dwell in our bodies in this lifetime, I believe. Um, the contraction at the back of the neck and the brainstem area is really um, interesting. I find more often than not that might may have to do, and again, I don't know your story, I'm just, you know, speaking, um, could have to do with very early trauma, often as a deep contraction at the diaphragm at the back of the neck or the diaphragm here too, mm-hmm. um, with very early trauma. And because it's so early, um, when it's very early, it's trickier to reach, if you will, 
because of the development of our brain and our awareness and consciousness and so mm -hmm. forth at that time. But it can elicit some sense of fear and wanting to, to get away. But where do we go when we're a baby? Because we can't fight or flee because the, um, the, you know, the motor apparatus isn't on yet for us to be able mm -hmm. to do that. So therefore, if there was some frightening experience as an infant, and I'm not saying the wires, again, this is just bouncing. No, there, there was actually. Okay. Yeah. Then it could be that you needed to disconnect. And this is mm -hmm. often a place where I find people disconnect from. Um, and so then that could possibly make the sense with this mm -hmm. is what's holding me back from freedom, right? There's a sense of co completely disconnecting from the body as a sense of freedom. It's, it's, it's one way it is, but it's not, you know, let, let's be in this body, in this life, to have this grounded, vibrant sense of aliveness and joy in this vehicle. Um, so you could possibly explore whatever that trauma was. Sometimes I find with very early trauma, touch can be really helpful uh, because let's say the infant isn't receiving the touch that he or she needs to feel safe in the body and connected. And so just a simple touch with no manipulation in any way, just a simple holding and presence can begin to help the nervous system relax and downshift from that little fight or flight that might be in there. And if there's any disconnection or dissociation from the body, it then allows right, that beingness to gently, naturally come back into the body because all of a sudden there's a sense of safety in the recognition of how long this non-safety is being. Even though you might have very connected places in the rest of your life, and a lot of safety other places, this, this one place, this very early consciousness might not have integrated enough to know that it's completely safe to be here, which could then possibly explain what you were talking about. Tell me the words you said again. It makes me feel as if we were afraid of something when this little contraction happens. It, it's sort of like, um, how would I put it? Uh, one scientific way would be to say that the the um, conscious mind is interfering with something that's just automatic. It's mm -hmm. kind of done by the autonomic. That's why I use those metaphors mm -hmm. like insomnia or golfer's yips or mm -hmm. impotence or, or um, stage fright. Where yeah. all you have to do is walk on the stage and, okay. and so, say what you're saying, but then there's this noise going on in the background. And so it divides the energy and then you become unnatural. Yeah. But I understand it clearly. You know, I had a good childhood. I had a very loving mom, mother, but I was born traumatized. I, was, I had some disorder, so I screamed for the first three months of my life. I couldn't hold down her milk. Wow, yeah. And um, there was a little miracle, actually. She put a card that she had gotten from, it was blessed at Fatima, a lady of Fatima, and she put this card on my tummy. I was lying on my back screaming. And then she said the prayer on the card, and I stopped crying. Mm. Never cried again until wow. I was about one and a half and learned Beautiful. to walk and fell. Oh, my goodness. But some, something was going on. Maybe I was killed in a knife fight or something in my last life. But, but Well, I think screaming for three months is enough. So even if your mom is holding you and loving you, the distress in your system that's causing you to scream is enough to have to disconnect from the body, possibly in, in some way. And I hear a lot of people come to me, they've been referred to me for one reason or another, and they say, well, I'm not traumatized. I had no trauma when I was a kid. My parents were great. 
But again, it's those nuances of trauma that we don't recognize, that maybe the mum was afraid or angry or depressed in some way, and that transmits in the baby through her eyes, not in any way that she meant it or understood, but that can happen. But just your experience of screaming for three months can leave an imprint that can embed in our system Mm -hmm. that can create that division. So there's not Mm -hmm. that complete sense of unity that creates that little bit of stage fright in life sometimes that we, we doesn't quite make sense because, you know, you're confident, you know who you are, you've done so much practice. Why, why is this thing still happening where there's a little bit of fear coming up? So that, that could possibly be something to explore from an early trauma perspective. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. Thanks for coming up. This is my old friend John. We met in Belgium in 1974. I just remember that is true. when you first showed up, I was there. That's right. And yeah. Had some wonderful adventures together. There are a lot of people, a lot of teachers, and a lot of you know therapists and stuff that, um, you know, mindfulness-based ones that say uh, that if you if you can see your trauma, if you can if you can face it, then it will dissolve. You know, you just need to, to see it or, or feel it. And like once you notice it, you know, once you're really noticing it, then it just kind of melts away. I feel like there's a lot of people that sort of have that sentiment. And then there are other people who might tend to agree with that sometimes that is just not enough, yeah. obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in my talking to, let's see, the last professional I talked to, kind of a non-dual therapist, but... Um, very grounded and embodied and, and great, nothing, nothing sketchy there. She was really helpful. And I, I would explain to her my experiences and how much of this trauma and this energy I, I feel in my body, like all the time, mostly right here. And she was saying like, you know, we need to, we need to get in there, uproot those core beliefs and everything. And I'm like, you know, you're right, but I feel like, I don't know if these are the right terms, but my, my heart, I think, doesn't even believe the core beliefs that the trauma energy seems to have. Mm -hmm. I hear what the trauma is saying. I hear those fearful statements. I hear the worries, but something just knows that they're not real. And it's almost like my higher self knows, my higher self is okay, is confident, is not so affected by that fear, but I'm still carrying around the sensation in my body and it still has things that it says. It still makes statements. And I hear them and I'm just like, no, that's not quite real. You're fine. Things are going to be fine. And, and you know what I mean to keep saying they're going to be fine because that assumes that we know the future and we don't. And we should be totally open to whatever comes up. But there seems to be just this weird, it's almost like a different entity. And this teacher I was talking to, this therapist was telling me, you could think of it as your inner child. It's like your adult portion of yourself is, you know, very evolved and, you know, with it. But then there's the child that is screaming and crying all the time and making these fearful statements. And I think I might be trying to tell this child, it's fine, it's fine, just shh, it's going to be okay. Uh, and I think that there needs to be maybe a more, uh, I don't know, motherly nurturing approach. Um, maybe I need to listen to the child more. Can, maybe. Can I, can yes, I just be like, it's okay if I put my hand Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I love what you're saying. I wanted to hear, but a lot came up. So I don't necessarily think of the sense of us having an inner child and Mm -hmm. that we run around with these inner children. My view is that when we're growing up in this trauma, 
parts of our consciousness. It's as if they split off and are encapsulated at that time, right? And then don't reach the psychological maturity that we are today. So mm-hmm. you know that you're safe and you know that you're okay and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this higher self that really knows all of that. Mm-hmm. But let's say parts of your consciousness are remaining at two and then three and a half and then five. Mm-hmm. And that consciousness doesn't know you're okay. And that's also informing you. But it's informing in you, you in a way where sometimes it might, it might get triggered and then you view the world in that way and then you feel more fear or mm-hmm. more upset or mm-hmm. act out in a little bit away. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that does happen. Yeah. Really. So these split off parts of our consciousness, it, there's different ways to access that. But not to think of it as a separate entity or sometimes it is, does work and it is helpful to see it as a young part of ourself. Mm-hmm. And just like a mother would do to a child, you know, if we're in the middle of a, a horrific event to say, oh, be quiet, you know, go to your room, you're fine. Oh, stop crying, it's going to be okay, right? It's like, hey, what's going on? What's happening? What are you feeling? What's going on right now? You know, inquiring and attuning to those parts of yourself, right, that, or parts of your consciousness or parts of yourself that are trying to get your attention, that don't know that the danger is past. I mean, it's still the nervous system, body speaking to you. Parts don't know. Some of it doesn't know that the danger's over. So we want to communicate, and there's different ways to do that, to that consciousness to see what's needed. So, for instance, at three and a half, what you may have needed more than anything was for someone to come over and put their hand on you and look at you and say, it's okay, I'm here, you know? And that feels really good. In that, and when people do that, yeah. especially in, in vulnerable moments where they know I might be upset or something, right. it's like, it's incredible how healing it is. Yeah. For someone to respond to my upsetness with compassion, it's yeah. like instant, like, it just, the shell just breaks, you know? So and I'll, then, I might, there might be a lot of crying or whatever, but it's like, it's like it, the, the tension just disappears. Yeah, yeah. So then the invitation would be to not just say, okay, this feels great and then move on, but wow, how does that feel in my body to be without that tension and to really anchor that experience within you so that becomes a more familiar experience than the tension and the pain and the upset that might be stored. Mm -hmm. So you're giving yourself these very pleasant experiences that the body can then anchor and become more used to, which allows the body to become a safer place to be, which might allow the next layer, if there's another layer of trauma to come up or maybe the emotion to be able to come in so you can begin to liberate that emotion that got split off because at the time of the traumatic event, it was too much to feel. So the emotion's gone. You know, parts of your consciousness are split off and it's exhausting holding that down. So very gently Mm -hmm. we begin to bring it in piece by piece, not in one big cathartic scream because that's Mm -hmm. re-traumatizing, but in a gentle, compassionate, nurturing, sometimes feeling the shakiness. It's like I say we have to work just beyond the edges of our boundaries of our capacity, right? So there's this dance occurring where we're taking risks to feel a little bit more. It's like exercising, like lifting weights. Almost. Exactly. So we can feel more and more and more. So let's say anger or rage got split off. When you begin to feel those, if they come in, it's not this terrifying experience where you have to whip it out at somebody or it whips back in against yourself, but you begin to transform that energy, that vital life force of anger and rage back into your system where you become more empowered, upright, and confident, which we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. <sighs> there you go, in a nutshell. But, but yeah. All right, well, 
just a, a really quick part too before we move on. Is there, I tend to get a little annoyed at questions like these almost, but I'm about to ask one. What, what is maybe one thing that I can just take with me back to my seat that I can do or keep, keep in mind maybe when I'm having these feelings like palms are sweaty, this feels really contracted, but I know everything is fine. Like in those moments, um, besides, you know, maybe just noticing it and being, being okay with it that it's there. Is there something? I mean, there's probably a million things. There's a few things, so I'll give you a couple. One would be to connect with somebody else. If you're with somebody else and you trust them and they're kind and you can make eye contact. So kind, loving eye contact is often what's missing in trauma because Mm -hmm. that's what would help soothe us and calm us and prevent that uh, maybe trauma from embedding in our system. It stays out there in the event, not in us. So if if you're feeling, you know, uncomfortable, sweaty palms, if there's somebody safe around and you can look at them and have that nice experience and notice what happens in your body, there's nobody around. Sometimes just looking around, like do it right now. Just look around the room, take in, take in what's around you. But move your head, neck, and eyes. You're just moving your eyes. Mm. And see if you notice your, yeah, it's, your breath yeah. starts to move. You see? Mm-hmm. Sort of in this frozen, stuck place with your head, not wanting to look around. You went, okay. Oh, no, that's, I go through my whole life like that, yeah. especially in okay. public and around strangers yeah. and stuff. Like, you know, I love all of you and I'm comfortable with you, but simultaneously I'm absolutely terrified. Yeah, so, so, so you know? sometimes to tell that experience, uh, that fear experience for a part of you or your nervous system, that there's no danger, right? How do we know there's no danger really to the nervous system, right? We look around. That's beautiful. Okay. That's really so helpful. it's kind I'm of yeah, sending messages to your body, to your nervous system. Actually, we're safe because I can look mm-hmm. around and nobody's coming, yes. right? And then you can maybe put your hand on your heart. Yeah. That I, releases a little oxytocin yeah, sometimes, which is I, a bonding. Uh, I found out that doing this to myself sometimes, nice, probably yeah. making the mic. But I think my mom used to like run my tummy nice, that when yeah. I was a kid, and it yeah. kind of invokes that feeling, but it's very soothing. Yeah. So but I can't always just be walking around public, like touching <laughs> myself. Especially because the warmth of my hand is helpful feeling it on my skin. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I can't do that all the time. But that's really beautiful and helpful. And so, I, I like that. Yeah. And I know you, I'm going to promote my book here. I know you Please said you were going to buy, but there's, there's a lot of uh, exercises in the book that help with just what you're saying. So there's five or six that, mm-hmm. you know, in the right environment, we can use one, but not the other. And it mm-hmm. talks about collecting resources. So when I'm in a place that feels uncomfortable, is there an image that I can bring to mind? Is there something with my breath I can do? You know, something with another person. So there's all kinds of exercises that can help people who may not have the resources or the access or, you know, time to, to reach out to somebody, yeah. you know, to, to help them. But they can do it within themselves, which is really empowering. That's great. There you go. Oh, there you go. Oh, what was this? Yours uh, or something? It's, well, she sent it to you, but now it's yours. Oh, well, that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thanks for coming up. And yeah. Asking. Yay. So the book, the Body Awareness Workbook for Trauma, I wrote it because I was asked to write a book. Actually, before I was asked to write this book, I was um, asked by a different publisher to write a book on trauma, and I was halfway through it in a horrific traumatic event happened externally to me that shook me up. It was something so beyond the sphere of my own existence that happened that I don't think there's any way anybody couldn't be traumatized by it. 
And because I had a 10-year-old at the time, I had to navigate what was occurring in the environment with my daughter. So I let go of writing the book. And through that six-month period of really of making sure I didn't become traumatized and my daughter didn't because of these events, I was so grateful that I knew everything that I did about trauma so I could work with my own being, I could work with my daughter. And on the other side of that, then you Harbinger came and asked if I would write a workbook. And first I thought, well, I don't really want to write a workbook because it's trauma and it's relational. And I said, well, I don't want to miss this opportunity. So I, I decided to write a workbook that would really work and that it would be relational in a sense that I would put myself in it as much as I could, that people might be able to, to feel that I... You know, I know trauma, I've gone through trauma, I've healed trauma, and so forth. And I put in what I feel are some of the really important parts of healing trauma, the initial steps, which is safety and connection and boundaries. So a lot of people that I work with, Rick, come in and they've done a tremendous amount of healing work, psychological or spiritual work, but they haven't created these um, foundational structures of safety and connection within themselves And so often these other pieces of work that they do don't integrate enough for them to actually dismantle or dissolve. So I begin with a lot of exercises that set a great foundation and then go on to deeper uh, exercises and deeper experiences and practices that we can do. And you can go through the book step by step. You can flip through it and just choose exercises that might feel good for you in the moment. You can keep coming back to it. As I say, we're a work in progress. So we might do one exercise and come back a few months later and do it again and just go deeper and deeper and deeper into the core of, of the trauma, if you will, to resolve it. Great. Thanks, Julie. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> so thank you for the whole thing. Thanks for inviting uh, me. Yeah, I really enjoyed this and our little audience has enjoyed it and I think our bigger audience will enjoy it. I'm glad we got to do it in person. Yeah, me with too. With the audience. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. So to those who've been listening or watching, uh, this is another episode of Buddha at the Gas Pump. And um, if you feel like it, click the little bell next to the subscribe button on YouTube. And clicking the bell tells YouTube that you want to be notified every, every time I post a new video, which is about once a week. And um, if you'd like to be notified by email, there's an opportunity for that on batgap.com. There's also a place to sign up for the audio podcast if you're the type of person who likes to listen to things while jogging or commuting or whatever, and a bunch of other things if you explore around the site. So appreciate your time, and we'll see you for the next one. And thank you again so much, Julie. Thanks, Rick. See you later.